So today we're going to go to Revelation 19, and uh, I'm rather fortunate in so far I think I've been given one of the greatest chapters in the Bible to preach this morning as we come to Revelation chapter 19. really is a superb chapter, one that will challenge uh, us as we look at it in terms of doing justice to it. Uh, people, of course, are fascinated about the end times, and uh, what we're reading here in Revelation 19 is certainly about the end times. It's not telling us when the end times occur, nor actually is it telling us uh, what is the order of events even concerning the end times, but it certainly does tell us what is happening at the end. So we're going to read right through chapter 19 and then get stuck into it. So after this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, for our Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear, and fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that, I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. And I saw heaven open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gather together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast 
and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, and the rest were killed with a sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. There are three great end-time events that are mentioned in this chapter. There's Babylon, there's the wedding, and there is the return of the king. So let's look first of all at Babylon. And really what we're reading here is celebrations concerning the fall of Babylon. And that's what's um, being done in verse 1. The shout goes up, celebrating the fall of Babylon. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now, the word hallelujah is often found in the Bible, isn't it? And uh, uh, I wonder how often it's there. You can uh, see it again and again in the Old Testament. You may just be a little bit surprised, though, to know that this is the only place in the whole New Testament where the word hallelujah is actually used. In Hebrew, the the word means something like praise Jehovah God or, or praise our covenant God. And of course, it's an international word. You can use the word hallelujah in any place and in any language and be understood. But the New Testament reserves the use of the word hallelujah to celebrate the fall of Babylon here in Revelation 19. Now, Babylon is a term often used in the book of Revelation. I'm sure you've looked at it as you've gone through. It's a key word. It symbolizes worldly systems, worldly structures, cultures which are opposed to God and hostile to the church. It's actually very seductive, and that's why in Revelation chapter 17, uh, Babylon is personified as a prostitute. It's like uh, Babylon is a a prostitute, a woman who is a prostitute. And that's speaking of a worldly spirit which seduces people. So Babylon is seductive. It seduces people away from God. But what we've been taught already in the book of Revelation is that in the end, Babylon will fall. And that's the great theme of chapters 17 and 18 in particular. So if you look at chapter 18, verse 2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And then in verse 20, there's a cry that goes up to rejoice over the fall of Babylon. That's there in chapter 18, verse 20. Rejoice over her. That's rejoice over fallen Babylon. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged Babylon with the judgment she imposed on you. And in fact, the beginning of Revelation 19 is a response to that call to rejoice over the fall of Babylon. Now, on the earth, people mourn the fall of Babylon because systems that they have trusted in, they've now just disappeared as Babylon collapses. Worldly structures things that they've given their attention and their life to, all that now begins to evaporate and to disappear at the end. Babylon falls, and in fact, the worldly people are crying out, woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. But heaven's response is very different. And here it is in verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 19. This is a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. 
for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute, that's Babylon, who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And this shout of hallelujah seems to get louder and louder as you go through this passage. So in verse 1, it's a great multitude. That's probably angels who are shouting hallelujah. In verse 2, there are 24 elders that probably represent the church. They're shouting out hallelujah. Also, four living creatures that represent creation. They're shouting their praise to God. In verse 5, every servant of God is called upon to join in this chorus of praise. And by the time you get to verse 6, it's simply overwhelming. I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Well, what it conveys to us is this, that when there's a victory, you don't whisper, you shout. And sometimes I've heard people say about our churches, well, of course, our churches tend to be rather noisy. Well, can I say to you, get used to it, because actually we're in the business of celebration. If you've got a sports victory, people shout, and we shout because of the victory of God, and we celebrate that. In heaven, it's full throttle. Babylon, the prostitute, has fallen. Shout and celebrate the victory of God. Now, two quick things about the, the fall of Babylon. For one thing, it means this, that all hurt and pain will come to an end. If you look at the body of Christ, there is actually a lot of pain. And uh, I think one of the things that we have to do as believers is to actually fight against being depressed by that which is trivial. In which connection, let me give you a testimony that I am a veteran of the worst weather at any Bible weeks that have ever taken place. So I can go back to Dale's 1978. I wonder, was there a handful at Dale's 78 when Bob Mumford spoke? Yes, I see that hand. (laughs) Um, When Bob Mumford spoke, I tell you, it rained non-stop at the Dale's the entire week. It never stopped, never gave up at all. Then I was at Downs 87, week one, and then week two. That became known as Drowns 87, uh, where I was flooded out of the tent. I was in four times during the course of the time that I was there. Then I was at Stonely 99. Well, I expect quite a number of you were there. And I was there on Sunday, week two, <coughs> when every storm cloud in the UK gathered over the uh, Stonely site, and people were flooded out and had to leave the campsite, etc., etc. I've been all the worst weather events when it comes to Bible weeks. Let me just give you a warning. I will be at West Point 2016. (laughs) I've also had holidays in Cornwall. Years ago, we went as an entire family down to Cornwall some years ago. I have to tell you, I have six granddaughters. There are six girls in our family, six granddaughters, two sons, but we've got six granddaughters. And the first three days of that holiday were intense rain. It just poured down as it only can in Cornwall. On the fourth day, the rain stopped, there was a gale blowing, but because there was no rain, we decided to take the whole family down on the beach. As we arrived on the beach, the heavens opened again and we were soaked in pouring rain. So now, we have a major tantrum on the beach, 
and even our granddaughters are upset by it. And, uh, <laughs> but let me tell you this, a wet Bible week or a few days in Cornwall which are a bit wet is trivial. In the body of Christ, there is real pain. And it gets reflected through the book of Revelation. So that in Revelation chapter 6, you hear about the martyrs who are under the altar, which is the place of honor. And they're crying out to God, how long before you avenge our blood? And we can think of the martyrs at the present time, especially in the Middle East. And they must be crying out, how long before you avenge our blood? It's not sadistic revenge, but God's judgments are true and just. He is going to judge his enemies, and he will avenge the blood of his servants. And I think that reminds us of a wider truth, that in the body of Christ, there is much grief and pain. And there are many Christians who cry out one way or another, how long? And as a pastor now for many, many years, There have been so many times when I have been dealing with people going through real suffering and pain in the local church, and my dearest wish has been if only I could snap my fingers and just set it right because of the pain these people are carrying at the present time. Now, there is fellowship in the church, there is care, and there is prayer, and all of that really helps. But friends, one day it will all be set right. And it's there in Revelation 20, 21 and verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or cancer or pain for the old order of things has passed away. It will happen. I even heard Cliff Richards say a couple of months ago that he had aches and pains, the Peter Pan of the pop world. Even he says he suffers from aches and pains. Well, you can't set aside every pain and every hurt that there is today. Some of us will have to wait a little longer, as Revelation says. But the victory is with God. Every enemy will fall. Babylon will come down. Every tear will be wiped away, and we will join the hallelujah chorus. Now, one other thing about Babylon's fall is that God's victory will last forever. One of the questions I've again and again been asked about this passage is this. When Jesus returns and everything is restored, and we have a new heavens and a new earth, and everything is taken back to uh, perfection and to paradise, is there a chance that actually it could start all over again? Again, there could be a fall into sin, and all the kind of things that we've seen over the thousands of years could again be repeated. Could it come back again full circle? Now, in a way, that is a philosophical question, but there is a biblical answer to it, and it's here in verse 3. They're shouting about the fall of Babylon, and they say, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the expression there, forever and forever, is the strongest possible Greek term for expressing eternity without end. And what it's saying here is that when Babylon falls, God's victory is not just over every enemy, but it is forever and forever. And the smoke goes up from her, that is from Babylon, forever and ever. Perhaps there'll always be a reminder, even in heaven, that Babylon has fallen and it will be forever and ever. Hallelujah. 
Let's move on to the wedding. <clears throat> now, this is a wedding with no photographs. Uh, I just say that because I'm sure Steve will understand this. If you're a pastor, you have a certain amount of inner healing that's required if you've taken a lot of uh, uh, wedding services when it comes to photographs. Uh, years of my life have been spent waiting for the wedding photographs, but having just processed that, let me just note that uh, this is a wedding without uh, photographs. Uh, the Bible, of course, represents the church with different images. The church is the body of Christ, and then the church is the bride of Christ. In fact, in the Old Testament, Israel is often referred to as the wife of God, and the prophets speak of Israel like that. God's people, Israel, the wife of God, but always in the Old Testament, a faithless wife. Here, the church is the bride, joined to Christ amidst tumultuous celebrations. And very often I hear Christians speak and pray about the church as the bride of Christ, raises a question, is that what we are already? Are we, are, are we right now the bride of Christ? Let me just keep you to, to uh, marriage terminology for a moment. In the Bible, one of the themes, it's only a minor theme, but nevertheless it does run in the Bible, one of the themes there is the theme of betrothal. Now, in the New Testament, or at least at the time of the New Testament, a betrothal was a legally binding commitment to a definite marriage. It was much stronger than our engagements in, in its legal force. So, I mean, we can break an engagement very easily. I don't mean emotionally easily, but it won't affect anything legally. But uh, a, a betrothal was actually a legal commitment to a definite marriage. It made a statement that you were waiting for the big day, definitely. And uh, actually, Mary and Joseph were in this position of being betrothed when Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. You may remember that Joseph then determined to divorce her. That's what it says in the Bible. How could he divorce her? Because uh, he wasn't yet married to her, and he wasn't. But actually, in order to break a betrothal, you had to issue a bill of divorce. It was that legally binding. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 6, there's a, a very interesting reference to betrothal. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11, and Paul, of course, is writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, he says this to the church, two, 2 Corinthians 11, sorry, verse 2, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But the word that's translated in my Bible as I promised is betrothed. And Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, I betrothed you to one husband, to Christ, that I might present you as a pure virgin bride to him. And so this church at Corinth is betrothed, says Paul, to Jesus Christ, that she might be presented pure to Jesus Christ as his bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about the fact that the church is going to be presented to Jesus Christ as a radiant church or as a radiant bribe. And so, would it be more correct to say that at the present time, the church is betrothed to Jesus Christ? And what we read in Revelation 19 is about the church becoming the bride of Christ at the end of history as she is joined to Christ and united to him in eternity. And there will be, it seems, a good argument for, for saying that. But just as you've got all your Bible verses in a row, 
uh, and all your theology straight on it, you come across Revelation 22, 17. And, there, or, uh, uh, 17. and in Revelation chapter two, 22 and verse 17, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. And that is undoubtedly referring to the church right now. What is it that the Spirit and the church does now? The Spirit and the Bride right now says, come, Lord Jesus. So, now we seem to have got a, a bit of a contradiction. But this is the way I see it. I see it like this, that the church will so definitely be the bride of Christ. It's so certain, so absolutely certain and definite that you could speak of it right now as though it's already true. And there's a parallel to this that you might be aware of in Revelation chapter, uh, sorry, in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks of us as being predestined, called, justified, and glorified. And all those words are in the past tense. So in, the, in eternity past, we were predestined by God for himself. At some time in history, we were effectively called. In one day in our life, but in the past, we were justified, whether it was yesterday or 50 years ago. It was still in the past. There was a day when we were justified. But then it says we were glorified. And that's also in the past. Now, I can look at you this morning, I can look up here in the gallery this morning, and I can look at a people who I can say, yes, you're predestined, yes, uh, you're called, yes, you've been justified, but it's a bit difficult to say that you look glorified at the present time. I mean, some of you look a bit mystified, and s- some of you look a bit exhaustified, but to be honest, you don't really look glorified. But of course, the answer is that if we've been predestined, if we've been called, if we've been justified, then it is so certain that we will be glorified in the future that we can speak of it as though it's already happened. And it's like this with the bride of Christ. The the church will be the bride of Christ, but it is so certain that the church will be the bride of Christ, you can speak as though the church is the bride of Christ right now. So Revelation 19 is speaking of the big day. There's going to be a wedding, and the church and Christ will be joined forever. There in verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. Now, I've only very rarely been to a secular wedding, Uh, but there's one that I did go to some years ago that remains very vividly in my mind. And that is because it was a niece of mine. So it was a family wedding. It was actually a very happy day as, as it happened. But uh, uh, my niece and uh, her husband, they, they didn't want to be hypocritical, so they weren't going to have uh, a, a Christian service. They weren't believers, and so they weren't going to have a Christian service. But they did want a wedding ceremony. And so they had a full wedding ceremony, which was structured, as it happened, almost identically, to a Christian wedding service. And so the bride was dressed in white and came down the aisle on the the arm of her her father. There were bridesmaids. There was a best woman, so it was very politically correct. There was a a non-pastor pastor who oversaw the exchange of vows and the giving of rings to one another. There were songs that were sung. There were readings that were given. And there was even a congregational song that we all joined in. Now, if you have a wedding here at Hope Church uh, and you sing together, you're probably going to sing at at that wedding something like In Christ Alone, maybe. 
But uh, this particular secular wedding, we sang a song which was called It's a Perfect Day. So here we are, we're standing up as the congregation at this wedding, we're singing, just a perfect day, drink sangria in the park, then later when it gets dark, we go home. And at this point, I'm getting a kind of reverse experience, uh, because I've been in Christian weddings in churches, and I've looked at the congregation and seen some there who are not believers, and as we're singing together, you can see they're looking puzzled and thinking, what on earth are we singing about here? Well, I'm having this kind of experience in reverse. And so we go to verse 2, just a perfect day, feed animals in the zoo, then later a movie too, then we go home. This is not Wesley, but, uh, you know, it obviously has its place. (laughs) But listen, this is the next verse. Just a perfect day, you made me forget myself. I thought I was someone else, someone good. And all of a sudden, it doesn't sound quite such a perfect day after all. And I realize, this has always stuck with me, I realize that actually what we were singing at that wedding is the exact opposite of what we'll sing at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Because in verse 7, the wedding of the Lamb has come, the bride has made herself ready, fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Why will we be at the wedding where the church is the bride of Christ. I tell you, my friends, it's because something has been given to us. Fine linen, bright and clean. And that means, in the terminology of Revelation, that righteousness is given to us. The bride makes herself ready. She repents and believes in Christ. But the reason the bride rejoices and gives thanks and gives God glory is because God gives righteousness to us that allows us to be joined to Christ and to marry him for all eternity. You know, the attitude still persists, doesn't it, that uh, if there is something after death, I'll be good enough for God because of my own efforts. How will you ever know that? How will you ever be sure of that? Now, the song I just quoted, in a way, gives it away. Deep down, people know they are flawed. Have a nice day. Somebody loves you. Feel good about yourself, but deep down, there's still the real you. Let me tell you something about myself and probably most of the people in this room this morning. The Bible says we were dead in our sins. The Bible says we were far off from God, that we were without hope. There was nothing good in us to make us right with God. But then, at the end of history, we're going to be at that wedding. And we're going to be there, not because of our self-righteousness, not because someone made me feel good and a bit better about myself, but because fine linen is given to us. God puts his righteousness on us. It's a free gift from God. And we'll appear as the bride of Christ, spotless, clean, radiant. How do you get that gift? Well, you give up on yourself and your self-righteousness. You give up on all of that and you trust in Christ alone. If you do that, I'll see you at the wedding. And it says here, these are the true words of God. And what a wedding. You see it described there in verse 9. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Church, that means that we're both the bride joined to Christ and we're the guests to the wedding. 
So I think it's really speaking of our total involvement and our total union with Christ. Now, the idea of a wedding feast is quite common in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 4, verse 15, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. So what's for supper? We're going to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You know, so many Christians have said to me over the years, well, surely the wedding supper of the Lamb, it must be metaphorical, it must be a symbolic kind of feast. After all, uh, you teach, speaking to me, uh, that uh, the book of Revelation is full of picture and metaphor and symbol, so when it comes to the wedding supper of the Lamb, it must be something symbolic and metaphorical. I remember speaking about the the Bride of Christ, to the church in Dubai many years ago. And uh, in the church in Dubai, we've got uh, uh, really a very multicultural, very international church. And so I said, supposing you went to a wedding, and uh, you've been through the service and the photographs, and uh, as you've been through it, uh, the, the, bride, the, the best man then stands up and he says, uh, thank you so much for coming to the wedding. I hope you've enjoyed the service, as you know, you're invited to the wedding supper. I just want to tell you it's metaphorical. Uh, I said, I wonder how you'd react. And I said, I think you'd react according to your culture. So I said, uh, there there are Brits in the church in Dubai. So I said, you Brits in the church, how would you react? Well, I know what you do. You grumble. Well, that's typical, you know. Came along for a supper. No, it's all about government cuts, I expect. You know, we'd kind of grumble about it uh, generally. And then, of course, there's always South Africans in our churches, and there's a good group of South Africans there. I say, how would you react? And I said, I know what you'd do. You'd get together and you'd say, we'll make a plan, because South Africans always do that. They get together and say, we'll make a plan. A lot of Indians in the church, you know, they're told that this is a a metaphorical wedding supper. So how are you going to react? Well, you know how Indians react. They, they set light to the orders of service and they throw them in the air and have a riot. I mean, that's what, uh, what Indians do, you know. So I said, that's how you'll react. And then I, I said, what about you Filipinos? A lot of Filipinos in the church. Now, Filipinos, very gentle people, love, love to be together, love to party, love to, love to sing. I said, I know what you do. I said, you'd join hands and you'd sing to one another. Well, that went down a storm in the church in Dubai, and uh, they could see themselves in that. I wonder how we would react if we were told that the wedding supper of the Lamb is just metaphorical. Will this be just a symbolic feast? That would make it less than we enjoy now. And I've been on a battle for years to try and say, saints, when we get to heaven, this right now is only a pale reflection of what it's going to be then. And I tell you, it may not be food in the way that we quite understand it, exactly the same as we would have today, but I tell you this, if we have a celebration and food at a wedding supper today, it will be ultimately and exceptionally superior when we enjoy together the wedding supper of the Lamb. And again, in verse 9, it says here, these are the true words of God. I tell you, it's going to happen. And so we come to the end of the chapter and to the return of the king. And this is the most, uh, I suppose, picturesque description of Christ's return that is given to us in the Bible. It's, It's been alluded to a number of times already in the book of Revelation, but now, very much in picture language, but marvelous picture language, it is described to us. And I'm just so aware this morning, as we come to the close 
of this chapter, which I'm only going to mention very briefly, that we look at these verses in the wake of Mali this weekend and Paris last weekend and Syria every weekend. And we look around our world and we think, Lord, how long? And we look at the destruction and the mayhem and the chaos and we wonder what is happening in our world. Let me tell you this, 318 times the Bible tells us the King is coming back. And here in Revelation chapter 19, we get a description of it in this wonderful phrases that are used here. And so heaven opens. And one day it's going to be like that. It's as though heaven will open. And John has already had visions of an open heaven through the book of Revelation. And now heaven is open and a mighty conqueror rides out. And the scripture says here, his eyes are like blazing fire, and he wears many crowns which speak of his great glory and his majesty. And what's his name? Well, it seems he has a secret name that no one but he himself knows. But he has other names that we do know. And one of the names that's proclaimed here is he is the Word of God. And this king, as he rides out, described as riding out on a white horse, does not ride alone because Alongside him and behind him, there come all the armies of heaven. I imagine the angels, the archangel Michael. I imagine all the saints who've already died, the martyrs, those who've suffered, those who've been in pain, all caught up at this point, riding as the armies of heaven on their own white horses, coming with Jesus as he returns in majesty and glory. And he comes for final judgment. It is the last battle, although in a way the battle doesn't actually have to be fought because as you read the very closing verses of this chapter, what you see is that the the beast, the antichrist and the false prophet are thrown down and they will be destroyed forever and ever. And all the enemies of God are thrown down to be destroyed forever and ever. And uh, all his enemies are, as it says in 1 Thessalonians, concerning his coming and doing away with the Antichrist, that when he comes, he will destroy the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth and the splendor of his coming. Because this mighty king and conqueror rides forth. And he will reign, king of kings, lord of lords. Church, it is our sure and certain hope. I tell you, the king is coming back. Let me just close this morning with some words written by Tim Keller, which I read recently, and uh, I just feel somehow sums up the whole of Revelation chapter 19, and it's uh, it's his expression of the gospel, but it sums up Revelation 19, and all I've been trying to kind of set before you this morning. And Tim Keller says this, Tim Keller, a very famous preacher and theologian in New York, um, author that many of us are reading at the present time. And Tim Keller says, it looked helpless for the human race, but God became flesh and entered the world of time, space, and history. He lived a perfect life, but then he went to the cross to die. When he was raised from the dead, it was revealed that he had come to fulfill the law with his perfect life, to offer the final sacrifice, taking the curse that we deserved and thereby securing the promised blessings for us by free grace. Now, those who believe in him 
are united with God despite our sin, and this changes the people of God from a single nation-state into a new international multi-ethnic fellowship of believers in every nation and culture. We now serve him and our neighbor as we wait in hope for Jesus to return who will sweep away all death and all suffering and will renew all creation. Hallelujah. Let's stand together. Perhaps we can have the band, please, who are going to lead us in the final song in just a moment. But let's just pray, can we, before we worship once more. Lord, we thank you for this great chapter of the Bible. We thank you that it lifts our eyes this morning in this desperate world in which we are living. We thank you that it lifts our eyes and we have hope. We thank you that Babylon will fall. Every, every structure, every system, every institution, everything hostile to God and to the church of Jesus Christ, it will come down. And we thank you, hallelujah, that you will have victory over all your enemies, Lord God. We thank you that this cycle of events that we know as world history will never be repeated. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, and Jesus will reign forever and ever. And Lord, we're looking forward to the wedding. And we do look forward to weddings, Lord. We know the times of celebration. And we thank you that there's going to be a wedding which will be beyond our imagination, beyond any experience of the greatest wedding we've ever been to on earth, any royal wedding that we've seen on television. And we've seen the celebrations and the crowds, Lord, as nothing compared to the wedding supper of the Lamb when the church, the bride of Christ, is joined to Jesus forever. And we thank you that we live with this blessed hope that our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will ride out from heaven one day. He will return. He will restore everything. All things will, will, will be made new. And Lord, we thank you that we'll reign with him forever and forever. We rejoice in the good news of this chapter. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen.